What is love? Okay, this essay is going to meander, go off on tangents, and go in fits and starts because this member of the vow trinity is the most ill-defined of the lot. It gets used in half a dozen complex contexts, and the word gets thrown around casually for wildly different emotional states and even forms of language. It is noun and verb, mild and intense, platonic and carnal, alpha and omega, zero to sixty. It is the stuff of poetry and song, ancient, today, and the future. It makes life better. It makes life happen. It is interactive, and in the trigger for this essay, it is introspective. The inchoate nature of the word encompassing such disparate phenomena combines science and the most woo-woo, new-agey psychobabble you never asked for. Buckle up, buttercup. Welcome to the club no one ever wanted to join. This is Refused, the unofficial podcast of Eliasm.org. Having a tough time spelling that? It's an acronym for I Live in a Sexless Marriage. Listen to stories, articles, and sometimes the dark humor experienced by those in sexless marriages here on Refused. On Eliasm.org, you'll see much wiser people than me give advice on coping with sexless marriage. And you may see my less useful posts under the name Mirror Orchid. Until then, you've suffered enough. On with the show. I noodled through the phenomenon and word of love for a month before putting pixels to screen on this essay and did not improve upon the arbitrary, arrogant declaration of truth I came up with on the first day. Love is... The desire to sacrifice without expectation of compensation. There you have it, Hadaway. Stop asking. This sacrifice can be in service to inanimate objects, addictions, and causes, things incapable of reciprocation, except perhaps indirectly or self-administered warm fuzzies. You can love drugs, gambling, food, sex, and sacrifice time and or money to get more of it at the expense of other things you'd enjoy more, or should prioritize more highly, the thing you love may be really bad for you. Not only is there no reward coming your way, it may very well penalize you. Unrequited love hurts whether it comes from a person or a passion. Preferably, our sacrifices benefit us through witnessing the fruition of a project, the growth of a loved one, or the deepening of a romantic connection. What brought me to the point of inspiration for this essay was a podcast that was speaking of self-love, a gooey, sketchy, flesh-crawl term the more jaded, hardened, cynical among us would readily eye-roll over. The podcast spoke of how one begins to engage in self-compassion. Cut yourself some slack. Indulge yourself, even when there seem to be a hundred different things you should be doing for others first. Setting boundaries, recognizing your own worth, 
and reordering priorities others may be imposing upon you. This comes down to having a sense of value that you deserve a degree of consideration. Everyone does. Some morsel, some tidbit. I thought to flip the script. Let us accept you are as worthless as you think and or as worthless as some outside party is professing. Might you be worthy of consideration one day? Is there some set of circumstances under which you might accept top priority? Do you couch your entitlement to consideration or a fair shake in terms of accomplishments that must be performed first? If I just blank, then I can let myself go on vacation, ask for help, replace my car, start my hobby again. Are those requirements realistic? In what time frame? Who brought you to conclude that your desires are rock bottom until these things get achieved? If it was you, what may have brought you to believe that every self-indulgence must be justified in terms of a give-and-take balance? Is that give-and-take fair? Understandably skewed against you? Tilted your way, but you want more. All give and no take? Are you without value regardless of your actions henceforth? Are you irredeemable? Are you committed to forever serve others and dash yourself against rocks of expectations and obligations you caused or have taken responsibility for? This is an important question to ask. It may be instrumental in the more thorough understanding of the vow you took a retroactive assessment. When you promise to love someone until death do you part, nowhere does it specify how much or in what way. Marriage is referred to as a contract. Can you imagine the reaction of a lawyer who looked upon our vows and asked us if we thought we should sign? Can you imagine a marriage contract written by a lawyer? Can you envision what the negotiations might look like? What the lawyer's bill would be when you were done? I'd wager it would make divorce look like the bargain of the century. Maybe that's why we're so sloppy putting them together, yet microscopically careful in taking them apart. We're young, stupid, and poor when we say, I do. We have a lot to lose, more smarts, and have less time left to do better for ourselves when we say, I don't anymore. How much should we love? In what way? Does the golden rule apply? Do unto others as you would have done to you? Or is it harder? Do unto others as they wish to be done. In another podcast, it was observed that it may be that the love languages we prefer to receive consideration with are those we lack most. This can be from a long deficit, perhaps from a failure to affirm from our parents, or shortcoming associated with one's current pairing. If you see gifts, were you raised poor? Or is your love interest scrimping and saving for a down payment because they are long-term thinkers, but you need a gesture once in a while? If you crave quality time, were you a latchkey kid? Or is your spouse workaholic? 
Both are possible, but the internal craving being a result of long-term or short-term neglect strikes me as likely. Often enough, we do not communicate these preferences, or our loved ones may have difficulties filling these gaps through circumstance or bumbling inexperience in providing them. Are we obligated to bring our significant other coffee each morning if that's going to make them feel loved? Should they be inclined to cuddle up during a movie on the couch if that doesn't come naturally for them? Yes, ideally. Is it love to be at their beck and call physically, praise them to the highest of heavens, spend every penny you have on whatever they ask for, go on intimate vacations, crossing things off their bucket list, but chafe if they ask for help or express relief when you happen by and rescue them from a mundane day-to-day -day struggle? Is it okay to bat a thousand on just four love languages? Is it required from us to tolerate four out of five if your beloved utterly whiffs on number five? This is the sacrifice part. If four out of five come easily, but the fifth is critical to their happiness, is the failure to sacrifice evidence of a lack of love. If we're speaking of self-love, do the same five languages apply if you're getting four out of five, is it too much to ask to seek out the fifth from our spouse or elsewhere? Do we affirm ourselves? Do we do our hobbies or cross some items off our to-do list that are lower priorities objectively, but please us personally? Do we get a massage or take our lover's hand with confidence? Do we relent and click buy on Amazon if it's not going to substantially imperil our finances or plans? Do we set aside four hours to meet up with an old friend for coffee? Or do we abstain from any of these five due to prioritizing others? Do we feel selfish and tell ourselves so? Do we ensure everyone's wants are met before we address a need of our own? Do we wait patiently for our lover to initiate affection for fear of pressuring Zer, for fear of rejection, for perception of unworthiness? Do we endlessly prepare for needs before a single whim can be satisfied? Do we risk sending a thoughtful text or put our phone away so as not to interrupt our partner's meeting with our notification ringtone? When we say these vows, do we take into account these trade-offs? Do we know ourselves well enough to understand what we promise? Have we tabulated our obligations and rewards in advance? Are we aware of the perceptions of our betrothed? Are they prepared to meet our needs? Do we, they, know what those needs are? Are we aware those needs may change, but our expectations to meet their needs and for them to meet ours will not? Do we grasp the event horizon level of gravity of both promising these things to someone else and the expectation that our partner is obligated to do the same for us? Are we prepared to understand this vow after it's too late to change it? Are we prepared to rise to the occasion, whether that means to sacrifice more of ourselves or lovingly explain what those vows meant to our once naive life mate?
initially proclaimed that love involves sacrificing with no expectation of compensation. So what the hell is going on with self-love? What do you sacrifice on behalf of you? You give up something for your own sake? Mm, that was my thought. You can take drugs that make you feel fantastic, or by continuing your addiction, feel tolerably okay. Or you give up feeling great okay for the sake of something you want more. Preserving your family, keeping a job, avoiding death. Flip it. Addicts sacrifice family, friends, wealth, and their career in order to feel great with drugs, or eventually just tolerably okay. You wanted that great okay feeling more than you wanted the more typical amenities of life that non-addicts strive for. Getting on drugs and off them are both acts of self-love. In the former, you are loving yourself more than those you disappoint. In the latter, you love yourself enough to sacrifice the temporary mood elevation of illicit substances for the future you know is a better long-term choice, if you succeed. Addicts stay addicts for a reason. Kicking a habit is not for the weak or timid. So let's really ramp up the grim of this essay up to 10, shall we? It's not that bad. The dial maxes out at 11. My essays are still analog. They have dials. Sacrificing feeling good or okay to seek out a life you know to be better is the former addict's act of self-love. Even if the addict does it for someone else's sake, the reward can be the other person's continued companionship or approval. That reward wins out over the fear of withdrawal recovery, at least at the time of the attempt. So what else might we think about when we hear about someone wanting to leave a comfortable, familiar, dysfunctional old life for a better, newer one? A life of same old, same old. Uh, life of quiet survival, never happy, but never so crushed as to be willing to take the steps necessary to deliberately get worse, so a happier, more sustainable, long-term future can be had. Here's a hint. You're listening to Refused. Go ahead, take a minute. I'll play Time for Tony twice. So, for those of you listening to Refused for the first time, we're talking marriages, or relationships that Eliza member Apocrypha credibly argues are no longer marriages. Even sex-full marriages can be unhappy, to be sure. Relationships where everything is dysfunctional, but the sex is mind-blowing. Both of these can be addictive. We stay with them because they feel great at first, or at the very least they stop us from feeling lousy. Like recovering from a drug habit, the short-term pain of leaving either behind is often worth the better life that results. Eliza members have typically been seen to recover remarkably quickly. Often enough, the rapid recovery may be due to our drug of choice, companionship, having not been dropped but merely swapped out. Like an addict getting good horse after having had nothing but stuff that's been stepped on twice. Fresh, erotic love can do wonders chasing away the ghosts of love that withered a long time ago, aka NRE, New Relationship Energy. The old one-liner puts it mischievously, crudely, the easiest way to get over someone is to get under someone else. The downside of that apparently sound 
quick fix is that some folks just link up with someone who's pretty much the same as the person they left. Maybe because the familiarity is attractive? There's so little effort required to like and understand this doppelganger, and since the relationship started well last time, this one does too. On Eliasm.org, I've previously spoken of dessert-first relationships, temporary marriages of three years or so, where you squeeze out the fun stuff that makes for joyous memories, and you know in advance that you'll find someone new when things simmer down to that everyday living, comfortable, secure love stage. If you're good with that plan, and the relationships that go sour are good to begin with, maybe you can finish your life that way, three years at a time. I'm unsure that isn't a viable plan. A risk in this strategy is that you will not be able to jump ship when the time comes. You'll extend it a fourth year because the secure, warm love part of long-term relationships isn't unpleasant. Some people crave it as badly as a new relationship energy. The secure warmth is the dominant goal for a puritanical culture like that of the United States. We admire the elderly couple on their 75th anniversary, even as we have varying reactions to the thought of the two of them getting it on three times a week. Some with overactive imaginations are hoping they don't. Self-love can be a challenging situation where you may need to kick the addiction to the secure warm love in order to gain a relationship with eroticism, or love substantially warmer than that which you have now, assuming an ember remains. Factors in our addiction may include our sense of honor in keeping our vows. Some are addicted to their sense of self as a magnanimous martyr, staying in our marriage because our spouse needs us too much to leave. These become justifications or rationalizations to stay. How much can embers cool? The self-esteem from sacrificing for another may lower passion in value over time, to the point that the desire for passion does not surpass the appeal of self-sacrifice to a long-standing, otherwise compatible pairing. Securing a nourishing relationship can become a greater act of self-love than sustaining one's self-image as a selfless person, or not. The self-image of the steadfast, reliable spouse instead remains more desirable than the lure of an affectionate companion. This preference for retaining a long-term relationship can be strengthened by fear of the unknown, realistic or unrealistic perception of statistical likelihood of achieving the alternative relationship, it may be influenced by the degree or duration of the dissatisfaction in the current pairing. Have you been together a short time? Giving it more time reinforces the self-image by demonstrating the virtue of chastity. Have you been together a long time? You demonstrate the virtue of loyalty. Is the neglect egregious? you are displaying the strength to endure. Is the neglect chronic? You have shown your bountiful patience. Do you have kids, you poor bastard? Leaving means not demonstrating loyalty, strength, patience, and chastity. Is your spouse less interested in perceptions of nobility or willing to fake them for their own reputation's sake? By leaving, you can be accused, even spuriously, 
of lacking these and instead exhibiting the corresponding assortment of vices, fickleness, weakness, lust, and being a quitter. Even if you can defend yourself, you're the one on the defensive. No one asks you to explain yourself when you stay in a rudderless, dithering marriage. Muddling through isn't scorned. It is praised even as the dithering goes undetected. Needing to construct a justification for leaving is, itself, a drawback to opening a sexless marriage or ending it. The withdrawal symptoms of breaking the bad habit are likely to be unpleasant and potentially agonizing. The draw to do nothing is powerful. This is where self-love may kick in. A tipping point must be met where your desire to get the marriage you thought you'd get overcomes the desire to hide the truth, or that desire grows greater than whatever satisfaction you derive from societal approval or the self-image boost you get from the good service you give to your spouse, family, and marriage. This may be at the heart of the first of the three solutions we hear at Eliasm frequently, stay, outsource, or leave. Staying is the choice of those who weigh the pluses and minuses and, at least at the moment, deem that self-love is greater by continuing the good service or avoiding the public disapproval. Sacrificing romantic, erotic companionship is showing yourself more love than dismantling a substantial part of your life for the possibility of a better one being cobbled together with some new pieces. Which will we sacrifice? Our self-image or our needs? Whichever choice we make may be a reflection of our assessment of greater affection and caring of ourselves. I previously observed, when we promise to love, we don't specify how much or in what way. I've also claimed love to be the desire to sacrifice without expectation of compensation. So when we ask how much we should love someone, we ask, if my definition holds weight, how much we sacrifice for a cause or person. We should note what it is we sacrifice by attending to the loved cause or person. What is traded? What might we be sacrificing for instead, be it other causes, people, or ourselves? I'm postulating that being in love is the intoxicating notion that sacrifices are smaller than they are while rewards seem greater. Inasmuch as satisfaction and grief of loss are subjective, this distortion of the costs of sacrifice may become fact rather than opinion. When in love, we sacrifice more readily as the costs seem light in exchange for the rewards we receive, be it pheromonal inebriation, gestures given in return, or mood elevation from the self-esteem boost of another's love sacrifice for us. Equal sacrifices can promote a virtuous cycle as each reward is enhanced by the boost of it having been produced as a result of affection. The sum becomes greater than the parts. Perhaps this is why it's better to give than receive? In a loving relationship, each gift has extra value for the person receiving it, and every gift received is enhanced by the gesture of goodwill, affection, esteem, appreciation, or love. A text can send a lover's heart skyward. 
flowers can have the recipient floating on a cloud all day. A naughty whisper can produce inordinate longing to shower a lover with pleasure. Small gestures are magnified by this feeling in love. This caused, most commonly, by a sense of novelty. Getting to know someone and liking what you find, it can come about from a long absence, perhaps reigniting passion due to the wish to remind oneself of the good qualities you've missed and learn of any new ones gained in the intervening period. One can have received prettier flowers, spicier sweet nothings whispered, or more personally intimate texts from one's past lovers, but the novelty of the new brings about chemical rushes that imbue value in gestures that might otherwise be seen as mundane. Certainly, you've been through it all before, but never quite as you have with this new person. In exchange for mundane things supercharged by the new relationship energy of a brand new love, we're only too happy to offer our own gestures, proffered hundreds of times before as an inadequate method to demonstrate our appreciation for our love's actions. We think nothing of them, they are little things, and our loved ones may respond with outsized enthusiasm due to the same new relationship energy you are marinating in. This is the selfless obliviousness of the value of our sacrifices we experience. If we overdo it, we revel in our capability to spoil our beloved rotten. We are inflamed all the more if they one-up us. This is the stuff songs on the radio speak of. This is the explosive capacity of our hearts. This is what inspires the muses. Why does it stop? Why do we fall out of love? But, by the way, if we fall in love, shouldn't we say we climb out of it? Yeah. Could it be breakage of the outsized valuation? We feel less loved or worse unloved, even if the behaviors haven't changed? The same mundane gestures lose their sheen of excess. Flowers from a years-aged love become par for the course, rather than unexpected expressions of admiration. The exchange becomes merely transactional, like for like. An unwillingness to provide a favor, regardless of reason, may be taken as an affront, a smiting of the magic of a fresh relationship. Rational thought may allay hurt feelings, followed by an acceptance of the common assumption of new responsibilities as part of an established couple intervenes. The absence of the drunken high is accepted as natural and a bit necessary. Being in love, interminably, is unseemly and frivolous. There's shit to do. Enough mooning around. Time to make a family, paint the house, plan the vacation. What of disappointments not produced by necessity but by whim? You stop watching TV shows you don't like because curling up with a good book sounds more appealing than lying on the couch with your beloved, where once the warm fuzzies carried you through the mindless action movie, not normally your taste. Your friend's one-time unexpectedly available tea time at a golf course that you've never played at beckons you away from the usual Sunday antiquing with the missus. Do the whims grow lopsided, and more whims on the other side are accommodated due to a nagging sense of being neglected? 
does the escalation of the self-care get interpreted as deliberate hostility, justifying more pulling away? Do counter-accusations of neglect solidify the resentment and bring doubt into the suitability of the pairing? Do the sacrifices increasingly become all burden and no reward in fact or perception? This essay ends with a trail of dots into nothingness, a void, a confused, rudderless drifting into a speck on a horizon lost in the gray line that is the multitudes of the lovelorn. Buzzkill complete. My work is done here. Tune in next week for the next kick in the groin. Toodles! That's today's show. Thanks for listening. Drop by eliasm.org to learn a whole lot more about sexless marriages and what to do about them. Or just find a sympathetic ear. That's I-L-I-A-S-M dot org. We're sorry you tuned in, but do it again soon. The intro and outro music is sampled from the instrumental Drown in Thoughts on the album Illusions by X Tickerex, whose name I may be butchering. Available at freemusicarchive.org. This podcast was narrated and edited by Mirror Orchid. This episode of Refused is not brought to you by Bumpkin Donuts, the donuts that go surprisingly well with sweet tea or Coors. When it's not raised up on cinder blocks in the front yard, America runs on bumpkin. So long. You're not alone. It'll be okay. I need a better sign-off. Do we feel selfish and tell ourselves so? Do we... Are we prepared to rise to the occasion, whether that means to sacrifice more of ourselves or lovingly, 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 lovingly.